Hello and welcome to Say That, the podcast where your big questions get real answers. My name is Matt King. I'm your host here in the city of Chicago. Joining us here is Jet Brewer. Hello! Also with us all the way from Rutgers, Tennessee, Lee Younger. Glenn, where are you, Glenn? I don't see you on my FaceTime. Conspicuous by his absence, regular co-host Glenn Fitzgerald, who is out in an undisclosed location. And by undisclosed, I mean... Wow. I forgot that Glenn was telling me where he was going, but he is not with <laughs> us, and that's the important thing. Uh, but we're going to soldier on in his stead. We've got the, all the regular shenanigans. We've got some great questions, got some fun stuff to get into. But first, it's been a while, fellas, but I think it's time to check in on the emergency state of Christian cinema. Oh, oh yeah. Gosh. <laughs> now, we start off with an old favorite. Okay. We check into. The recently released fourth installment of the oh, God's yeah. Not Dead franchise. <laughs> Whoa. The, fo- the fourth movie in a series is typically the good one. That's two more than I thought there were, and three more than we, strictly speaking, needed. <laughs> recently out, released in 2021, we have God's Not Dead, colon, We the People. Ooh. Wow. I will read the plot summary from the Internet Movie Database. The God's Not Dead franchise continues in God's Not Dead, colon, We the People. As Reverend Dave, now the thing says, Reverend Dave, parentheses, white. Now the actor's name is David A.R. White, and I assume that's what they mean, and it's not just a description, but I want to give you, the listening audience, the option to interpret that as you will. So the We the People, as Reverend Dave White, is called to defend a group of Christian homeschooling families. He finds himself taken aback by the interference of the government and believing that their right to educate their own children is a freedom worth fighting for. Reverend Dave is called to Washington, D.C. to testify in a landmark congressional hearing that will determine the future of religious freedom in our country for years to come. Wow. That that does not sound like an exciting movie. I got to be honest with you, man. Well, a couple things. One, um... Are you telling me he doesn't have a character name? That's the name. That's just the name of the actor. Well, his name is David White, and I believe the uh, the character's name in all these films is just Reverend Dave. Mm. Reverend Dave White, played by David White. Oh well, we're, so I'm on. I'm on the Google. We're not giving enough credit. Yeah, the yeah. Reverend Dave Hill, totally different oh. guy. Really inhabits the character. So <laughs> one of the another question I have on this movie is. I just wish that I wish that I could interview some people and find out like at any point did anybody that does like key grip or makeup or anything just say, guys, this is so ridiculous. I gotta walk. I mean, I need a job and everything, but I just can't. I just can't. It's not it, even the guy bringing pizza is like, I no, no, it's a no. no, no, no. I'm going to assume that the God's Not Dead movies are not um, union. So. Yeah. Not a lot of SAG actors on this. They are filmed in the, this one was filmed in the uh, notable cinema hotspot of Guthrie, Oklahoma. Oh, (laughs) the Guthrie, Oklahoma. That's right. (laughs) A town that I'm assuming is not correctly upholding the uh, legacy of Woody Guthrie. If a God's not dead movie is being filmed there. Fair point. May I ask a few almost diagnostic questions as we seek to understand this film? If anything needs to be diagnosed, it's the God's Not Dead franchise. Okay, in no particular order, question number one, do any of the characters possess Infinity Stones? Wow. Uh, Not to my knowledge, but I only watched the trailer. Okay, do any of the characters have a mutant healing factor? 
again. I think so, but I could be getting that mixed up with one of the X-Men movies where they fight Congress too. Okay. Third and final question. <laughs> and you know, I'm just, I'm just putting it out there. Whose skeleton is encased in adamantium in this movie? Weirdly enough, Judge Janine Pirro <laughs> makes a guest appearance as Judge Neely, who like is going to throw the parents in jail for homeschooling their kids or something. And That's I don't, not it's not works. textual, but I think you can, you, the physical acting is meant to imply in kind of, you know, oh, they do gosh. like the Marvel movies where like, oh, that's this, that's Beta Ray Bill, but they don't really say it, but you can, you yeah. just know it's kind of, it's an Easter egg really. Okay. Okay. An adamantium Judge Janine. <laughs> Does Judge Neely have like a retractable gavel that like oh. comes out of her hand? That'd be pretty cool, dude. And then she could say, you're out of order. Shinked. Pow, pow, pow. <laughs> well, I, I go to the God's Not Dead, A Light in Darkness, which was the third, God, uh, third God's Not Dead movie that you didn't know existed. Um, came out in 2018. But I go to, there for, to the Wikipedia for this. This is in the synopsis. The film follows the trilogy's Christian persecution complex theme. Uh, and is loosely based on the story of five pastors in Texas who were issued subpoenas for sermons due to potential violation of the Johnson Amendment. For those of you who don't know, the Johnson Amendment is the often ignored and literally never been enforced once thing that makes it technically illegal for a nonprofit organization to endorse or malign a candidate who is currently running for election. That's how narrow that is. You can guess why around 2016 and 2018. Some people in Texas may have gotten in trouble for endorsing or maligning a candidate currently running right. for election. <laughs> here's, the, here's the money quote. Unlike in the film, in reality, the subpoenas were soon dropped. Since 2008, only one of more than 2,000 mainly evangelical Christian clergy deliberately violating the law has gone audited and none have been punished. Aha. So the whole uh, kind of conceit of these movies, apparently, and the fourth one definitely seems to be in that way is okay. So there's this thing that Christians do all the time and no one cares, but what if they did? Ooh, right. What if instead of people making fun of this stupid thing on Twitter, the real thing that happens, they made it illegal. Ooh. Well, that's my whole thing is, does is, is there anybody that's actually saying to Christian parents, you can't homeschool your kids? No, Nope. They're letting them do it. You know, Lee, you'd think that, and I've, I've kept my silence uh, too long, really, if anything. And I, I feel as a former Christian homeschool student, I think it's time for me to come forward and, <laughs> and tell the difficult truth about, you know, my experiences, which was the entire time I was homeschooled, which was from second grade through the end of high school. So that's like a really, really long time. <laughs> yeah, we, we were beset constantly all day, every day by Delta force operatives, just trying to break into our home and stop our homeschooling. Um, you know, it, it, it was, it was nonstop. You know, we were, we were forced to, you know, uh, develop guerrilla warfare techniques, you know, to keep them at bay as we learned mathematics. It, it was really a very challenging upbringing. At one point in the mid nineties, Janet Reno herself tried to uh, breach the compound. <laughs> That's exactly right. That's exactly right. I think the most troubling moment was when you were just, you know, you were just trying to say the Pledge of Allegiance like a good Christian boy, and Janet Reno's adamantium gavel, you know, 
just came out of her hand and broke down your door. <laughs> well, you know what she, you know what she told me in that moment. She leaned in real quick. She called me Bub, which felt weird, but she said, "I'm the best I am at what I do, but what I do is jurisprudence." <laughs> I was like, "I don't even know what that word means. That's just weird." <laughs> but it, it, it's always stuck with me. Oh, yeah, it, as it would, as it would. Um, I love so I've I've got the trailer pulled up here. It literally ends so that's a two minute and a half minute trailer. The last 45 seconds of it are uh, Reverend White, uh, Reverend Dave, whatever, uh, meeting with, uh, I assume, some Democratic senator. And he says, men have been trying to outlaw Christianity for 2,000 years. What makes you think you're going to succeed where they failed? And this dude, who again has called some random pastor before a senatorial hearing for some reason, doesn't respond, uh, no one's trying to make Christianity illegal. We just want there to be education standards or something. He responds, they didn't have an 83% approval rating. Wow. Oh, my gosh. Which is amazing in a number of ways that this is um, totally uh, totally uh, paranoid uh, fiction. One is the idea that any American politician is ever going to have an 83% approval rating. Yeah. But then we've got that. But then it ends with... Uh, Reverend Dave here and they what is supposed to be this congressional committee and he gives an impassioned speech that your uh that your your uncle who doesn't really know how to work Facebook would write on Facebook about how those monuments out there mean you work for us and I thought freedom and I thought this was America and all that and the literal last shot of this trailer before it goes to the uh, the logo is everyone in the room standing and applauding at what a great speech this white man did <laughs> <laughs> Oh gosh, this is every white man's every white man's cinematic fantasy. Yeah, and if you've ever wondered yourself, how in the name of all that's holy are these movies popular? That's the answer. At its heart, all movies are about wish fulfillments. Indeed, the, the eight-year-old wishes he could be he would he was secretly a wizard and would be spirited away to a magical world. You know the the person wishes that they always had a snappy comeback, so they watch that, or they wish their world was. A whirlwind of romance and danger. So they watch a James Bond movie. This is what white guys who post on Facebook and no one cares what they post on Facebook. This is their wish fulfillment yeah. movie. Matt, may I ask, please, is there a chance? And I don't, I don't want to, you know, presume on the script writers and on the film, generally speaking, but the character of Pastor Dave Hill, can he remain silent any longer? I, it doesn't seem like it. <laughs> okay. Okay. He's come a long way since he was fixing that boiler in the first God's Not Dead movie that we watched. <laughs> I think his only silent moment that I noticed in the trailer was when he's just dramatically touching the names on the Vietnam Memorial, Matt. Yeah. Notedly, that's what they were fighting for in Vietnam was the right to homeschool. <laughs> now, before we leave the subject of God's Not Dead, I, I want to throw you gentlemen two names because who boy okay. are they names? And Jed mentioned the scriptwriter, and he didn't want to presume on his, uh, you know, his creative bounty here. The name of the the sole credited writer on this movie, and I believe the two before it, God's Not Dead, Tommy Blaze. Tommy uh, Blaze yeah, is that a Blaise. relative of Just Blaze, noted hip hop producer? Must be not Tom, not Thomas. Tommy Blaze, yes, B L A Z E. <laughs> you may have thought, okay. well, maybe B L A I S E. Nope. <clears throat> And then you're going to think that's the best one, but director Vance Null. Oh, wow. 
These uh, so these are the these are the the art, artistic minds behind God's Not Dead colon We the People. Are these guys? Do these guys moonlight as like uh, motivational speakers and um, screen printing T-shirt manufacturers? Yeah, either that or independent professional wrestlers. Quite. <laughs> Coming to the ring, weighing one hundred ninety-three pounds from Kenosha, Wisconsin. Vance, no. You know, that kind of thing. So we have, but we have, before we move on, we have one more stop in the Christian cinema landscape. Ah. And it's very similar to what we just looked at, but uh, maybe has a little more indie cred, maybe a little oh. less you know, mainstream. Mm. Is this cool. more of an art house film, Matthew? It, it very well might be. Okay. You know, we want to, we want to have a, a full picture of the cinematic landscape. This is a movie. It's so art housey that you can only. As far as I can tell, you can only experience it by Vimeo on demand. Oh, that's the good stuff. It's basically, which is basically uh. the Criterion collection of uh, internet <laughs> videos. It is called 2025, subtitle Uh-oh. The World Enslaved by a Virus. Ooh. Ah. So it's an action adventure sci fi fantasy. Okay. It's all of those. I like those. The, uh, the description on Vimeo on demand reads as thus. Set in the year 2025, since the outbreak of the coronavirus in 2020, the world has not been the same. A communist system with a single world government has been established. English has been chosen as the world language. Contacts have been reduced to a minimum. Christianity has been banned completely. Ooh. The constitution we know it no longer exists. Now, you think you know where this is going, and you kind of do, but there's one twist. Okay. In Germany... A small group of young Christians started an underground revolution to reunite Christians and regain freedom. Okay. This is a German paranoid evangelical Christian movie. That is deeply weird. Wow. Can I ask an opening question? Please. Um, Freedom to do what exactly? Cough in each other's mouths, I assume? (laughs) (laughs) Well, look, based on the... The current data that we have in, in, in the country that we're recording in over who decided not to get the extremely available and free vaccine and ineffective. is an effective vaccine. And based on the people that we know, uh, the data that we know, the people that are keeping this madness going it actually sort of makes sense that a world government in order to stop the coronavirus would ban Christianity. I hate to say that, but it just kind of makes sense. Actually. He's not saying they should. He's just saying he would understand. Look, I'm a Christian. I'm just saying that it's the Christians that have kept this virus. This is is very true. I will also point out um, to that same thing. We, you know, we're talking about with God's not dead, kind of the paranoid fantasy at the heart of it. Um, so, you know, you'll hear a lot of talk about uh, from certain uh, corners of the, the world, the Internet and whatnot, about how they feel about socialists, mm. socialism, these kind of things. Those are people who enjoy getting together socially. Yeah. So much <laughs> so that they built their entire uh, political idea around it. Oh, cool. It turns out Marx just liked hanging out. Ah, nice he wasn't guy. that fussed about the ah. whole production stuff, but he thought, nice. you know, if nobody's in charge, we can all just hang out together. That'll be cool. That's uh, got a good point. So, but you know, there's a lot of uh, you know, it's all the the stupid millennials and they're lazy and socialism is just the the famous Thatcher quote with the problem with uh, socialism is you run out of other people's money and whatnot and it's just lazy and they don't want to work and 
But also, apparently, the communists went from zero to running the entire world in four years. Wow. In their paranoid fantasies. And that's pretty good, I gotta say. That's impressive growth. Literally, we got everyone under one banner, we established a common language, and we banned the world's most uh, prominent religion. Again, we may not like it, but you do have to hand it to them, these theoretical communists. Well, what we learned, very well said, what we learned is that communism was the real virus all along. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but the other thing I like about this is that um, because this is not American, we, we see one small change to the kind of dystopian Christian evangelical fantasy. And that's that apparently to Germans, one indication of the uh, society has collapsed and the West has fallen and all is lost is they're going to make us speak English. <laughs> that's it. So yeah. um, obviously we make fun, but... If a one world communist government has taken over the world and banned Christianity by 2025, our bad. <laughs> I don't think it's likely, but I just want to put it out there. We do want to have our bases covered. Totally. As one very, very small detail, and I think part of why we're, we're going to bet that it's not going to happen, uh, just a little bit of fact checking. When you read the official synopsis of the movie, it reads, when the coronavirus you know, took over the world in 2020... It's called COVID-19 for a reason, because yeah. it was first detected in 2019. I feel like if you're going to do paranoid dystopian pseudo-fiction, maybe at least do some basic fact-checking. Right. At a certain point, it just feels insulting if you can't even be bothered. Yeah, but it, it was underground. It hadn't really... Very clear. Well, since COVID had taken over the world, you know, the Beatles formed in the late fifties, but they didn't really become, you wouldn't say that that's when Beatlemania started. <laughs> <laughs> Beatlemania was the real virus. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. I, I think, you know what? I think we could sell some advertising time if we could tie back uh, the coronavirus outbreak to people not cutting their hair. And taking that yes. all the way back to the Beatles. That certainly. And uh, hey, as we often try to do the emergency, I think we landed on our money making opportunity. It's a little more straightforward than our normal ones, but uh, I think that's going to make a a taut psychological thriller where the one world uh, rock hating government tries to hold down our main character. I'm going to nominate Jed here based on hair and uh, <laughs> shave his hair off so that people don't understand you can have long hair and do rock and roll. And I think I just combined. 2025 the german evangelical uh, paranoid fantasy with pink floyd's the wall yeah yeah <laughs> and oh. that's a weird that's psychedelic also if we can just have a poster with jed with a mullet that would be great <laughs> sure if i may coming summer 2022 <laughs> we don't need no jedducation <laughs> Excellently, yes. excellently yes, yes. done. And on that note, we will declare emergency off. And that took us some places, folks. And um, <laughs> I hope you're all picturing a mulleted Jed in the brick and the wall scene. And uh, I know I am. And it's a, it's a lovely, lovely place to be. Yeah. If you would like to uh, be part of funding our independent film odysseys, such as we don't need no education. 
a rock opera taking us through the rise and fall of the one world anti-haircut <laughs> communist government. You can get on the ground floor for only $8 a month at Bridgebox at missionusa.com slash Bridgebox. Not only that, but you'll get some encouraging stuff into your inbox the first of every month, missionusa.com slash Bridgebox. You can also join us totally free every Sunday at 7 p.m. at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Chicago for our bridge cast. We are back having our bridge service in person but we are recording that we are editing it down and we are bringing that to you every sunday if you can't catch it live with us you can check that out on our facebook page where every episode is archived if you scroll on down at facebook.com slash the bridge chicago we're gonna jump to our first question here if you have this all the way to the end i'll give you some ways you can touch this or you can scroll down into your episode description click the links down there our first question comes in and says i'm very discouraged about covid in the u.s With the variants and the vaccination rates, it seems like things might get bad again. I am angry. Angry at people that haven't gotten vaccinated. Angry at people going to big events unmasked. I feel like I might lose it if restrictions come back. On top of that, I feel bad for dreading it so much because compared to a lot of other people, I've been doing okay during COVID. I didn't lose my job. No one close to me has died. But I'm still feeling really anxious. What do I do with these feelings? And it is a very good question a timely thing i think folk thing a lot of folks are thinking right now and lee where would we start off with this whole thing yeah I, look th- this is a great question and and i feel very similar to you and 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 i i'm i'm always thankful for the folks that write into the show and just um just the clarity and honesty of of your questions we love to you know it's an honor for us to be a place where people can not only ask questions but occasionally can just straight up vent. Um, we certainly have the kinds of friendships where we, um, do that with each other, um, where we have to make a phone call sometimes and just say, um, Hey, I just need somebody to vent to. And, um, this is the way I'm feeling. I, this is, I'm probably going to say some stuff that's not great in this, but this is, this is where I am. And the thing that I want to, as I respond to this, um, other than just saying, I'm totally with you and I totally agree. The thing that I want to point to is that there is a really, there's kind of a high price to pay and kind of a sucky situation when you are the only mature person in a room. Um, and you sound like the kind of person who has been in a room like that before where I'm the only mature person in the room. But I want to talk for a minute about maturity because the thing about maturity is there's this there's this kind of really... Uh, this kind of weird, sucky balance when you're living in the space where you know <clears throat> there's a difficult thing. I handled it well. I did it um, ethically, morally, uh, with courtesy, and other people around me did not handle it well. We are all tired. We're all frustrated. We all have a lot of fatigue about restrictions and about all, you know protocols and the whole deal. But the thing about maturity is you, as a person who've handled this well, one thing that you know about yourself, even though you don't want to, there is something that you know about yourself that other people may not, which is you know you can do it because you already did it. Yep. The The really sucky thing about the place that you're at is, and we can we can talk for hours, and, and trust me, the guys on this podcast, we do. Uh, we talk with each other. We talk with our other friends off, off, off thread here about this very thing, but... There's a lot of frustration about the fact that this could have been quelled, handled, 
um, and dealt with, and we could be done with it if people had handled vaccinations the right way. If people had gotten the the free, available, um, and and effective vaccinations, then we wouldn't be looking at the exact same situation with that we are with different variants. Um, definitely not in the in, at the the level at which we are seeing it right now. There's a lot of venting that we can do about that, but and and, and there's a place for that. But the the kind of curse and uh, it's like a curse and a blessing of maturity is you already did this. You already had the maturity to care about vulnerable people in your community and do the things that you needed to do to be able to do something that no one has done in a hundred years and you did it well. It sucks, but because of that, what I'm saying to you is you can look at your own maturity, take a beat, take a breath, inhale, exhale, and say, I can do again what I've done before. I can do what I need to do. That's a sucky thing to face. That you you're gonna need to take some time on that. You're gonna have to again. You're gonna have to you have to take a you're gonna take a, take a beat. You have to breathe in and breathe out and realize, I I don't want to go back into protocols. I don't want to go back into restrictions. But as a mature person who has done something responsible and kind for vulnerable people in my community, I know because I have done it that I can do it again. Um. We all hope, especially for our children, the children in our community, that as more and more data rolls in about variants, that we are going to be able to find out that, you know, that we don't hopefully have to go into the same level of restrictions, lockdowns, protocols, all that kind of stuff. But what I'm saying to you, as and, and I'm saying this as a person who, look, I, I don't want to get all my masks out of the closet and go through the rigmarole of wearing them everywhere and washing them and the whole deal again. But as a mature person who did it before, I know that I can do it again. It's a, being a mature person is a burden. Um, and in a way I want to high five you and congratulate you for being one of those people, but you also have the ability to lead your, the people in your community and the people around you by being somebody who says, I can suck it up. I can breathe in, breathe out, and I can do what needs to be done for the for the folks around me. Uh, it's a beautifully put and a great place to start that off. And Jed, what would we have to add to that? Well, you know, I, I really appreciate your question. It makes total sense, and I, I certainly want to echo everything that Lee's already said. I'm offer a couple things that just happen to be useful in my life, and if they're useful for you, that's great. And you know, if not, chuck them. But I think when things are hard, I, I think one of the things that isn't often a very, very easy, a very useful distinction to make is trying to separate the thing that you have to deal with versus what it means and how we got here. Those are often two different things. So for example, suppose that you had a car and your buddy wanted to borrow your car and so you loan your car and he crashes your car. Okay. We kind of have two separate problems. You don't have a car, so we got to solve that problem. And separately, there's a trust issue with your buddy. These are actually two separate problems. We've, we've got the, the main material thing, and then we've got kind of the how we got here and what it means and what the implications are. And it's actually pretty difficult to try and face both of those at the same time because they're just different things. And so I think that there's a, a similar vibe here where there is a public health crisis that may require you to do things that you don't want to do. And as Lee said, you know you can do that because you've done that before. 
How we got here is a separate issue. It is worth looking at, but it's a little bit of a separate thing. The idea of I'm going to have to give up some of my personal freedoms for a while for the sake of, you know, the world not collapsing. You've done that. You know how to do that. And that's kind of the the action item. That's that's the big picture here. Separately, I think what I hear you describing, which is certainly understandable, is trying to figure out how do I feel about, you know, maybe people that I know who were not willing to be responsible, maybe people that I know who put their personal politics ahead of the safety of their neighbors, maybe people that I know who to me were just selfish in the way that they behaved. We do need to look at that. But in my experience, I think oftentimes we kind of need to do these two things separately. We need to deal with the grief of, holy cow, I don't want to be locked down again. I don't want to wear a mask again. That's one thing, and that's a real thing, and we need to figure out how to deal with it. And then separately, I feel so let down by my neighbors and maybe by people at my church and maybe by people in my community and maybe by people in my country. These are both important things, but I think it's going to be a lot easier for us to figure out what to do and how to have some peace and functionally speaking, how to move forward if we can give ourselves the permission to address those two items separately. The other thing that I think is worth looking at is you brought up kind of this sense of dread. And I think one of the things that's weird, but but we do need to acknowledge is that much of life boils down to, I hope that XYZ doesn't happen, but it might. Mm. And we yeah. kind of have to keep on living life until it does. Um, man, life is full of stuff like that. I hope my basement doesn't flood. It might. We're going to have to keep on living life and just deal with that possibility. We're going to take the precautions we can. I hope I don't lose this job. I might. We're going to have to keep on living life and take the steps that we can. I hope that my grandmother doesn't pass away. She may. We're going to have to keep on living life and do the best that we can with it. To put it another way, one of my all-time favorite writers and and all-time favorite storytellers um, is Alexander Dumas. And this is a quote where he says – this is from the Count of Monte Cristo. Until the day when God will deign to reveal the future to man, all human wisdom is contained in these two words, wait and hope. And I think that that is where you are and where a lot of us are. And I think that we are, we are tempted to feel like that's a special occasion. Like normally life's just totally lined out and squared away. And now there's this intrusion where we're not sure if things are going to work out or not. We're not sure if that, what that will look like or not. But I think that's actually much more true to most of life than, than maybe we're comfortable admitting. But, but here's why it matters is Living in a state of wait and hope, you can do that. Um, you can absolutely do that. That's actually wait and hope is in many ways a huge and good summary of the Christian life. Wait and hope. You can do that. It may be harder to do right now than it is in other seasons, but God is also prepared to give you the strength that you need for this season to do the next right thing that's in front of you, to wait for him to do what he's doing behind the scenes and to hope that he will come through. He will come through. This is not the final chapter in the history of mankind. This is not the final chapter in life on planet Earth. It is a pretty crappy one. We're sorry for what you're dealing with. I truly believe that if you will separate the difficult reality from how we got here, it's going to make it a bit easier to deal with. Lee is exactly right. You've done it before. You can do it again. In the meantime, we're praying for you, and we've got your back. It's all amazing stuff from both of these guys, and I think they are both pointing to the need for uh, some optimism in a time when optimism 
is possibly going to understandably be hard to come by. You know, you mentioned the variants, you know, uh, I think a big mental block for a lot of people is I kind of wanted to mentally say, okay, pandemic over when I got my, when I personally got my yep. second vaccine dose. Yeah. And that's just not the way that's going to work out. It certainly looks like, um, very unfortunately. Um, but one of the ideas on this is we have gone through this before, as you guys pointed out, and it sounds like if you, as you described in your question, I know this is a case for me and the case for a lot of people I know, you know, it's been a very sucky year and a half in a lot of ways, but you know, it was, it hasn't been the worst thing that's ever happened to some of us, you know, there definitely would, and we don't want to discount people who, who lost loved ones and lost their jobs and have housing situations because of all that. And that's definitely its own thing and a, a separate wrinkle to this. But as you're pointing <coughs> out, the thing that all of us experience together on the baseline of just, it's really uncomfortable to wear a mask when it's hot outside. And it's a bummer that I can't go to this game or this concert because it's closed or all these things becoming a little more of a pain. Those are definitely, you know, real and we don't want to discount those, but I think those get bigger in our mind as we thought we were past them. Yep. And you mentioned this point about the anxiety, something I've heard people uh, who are, who are therapists or who are more in that uh, counseling side of things say is one of the things that anxiety does to make your life worse is it makes you live every bad thing multiple times. Mm-hmm. So let's say, you know, it's Monday tomorrow and your, your boss, you know, texts you, calls you, whatever says, Hey, let's, let's have a meeting on Friday afternoon. Put that on your calendar. Now you might be getting fired. It could happen. If you get fired on Friday and you also freak out from Monday to Thursday, that has ruined five days of your life. As opposed to taking that wait and hope approach, like Jed is saying, and let it letting it super ruin one day of your life, and it will. But here's the other thing about that: if you don't get fired on Friday, you still ruined five days of yep. your life with the anxiety. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Even though the thing didn't happen, because you lived emotionally as if the thing was happening. Right. You live that scenario out. You walk through that. We've all done that. And we all do that, and it's a very tempting thing to do. But I think the hope and the optimism that these guys are are pointing you to is going to be the antidote towards that. And we get there by having hope that things could go better by looking as, as Lee started off with, with the idea of you made it through the first round of this, you know, you can do that again. You have better tools to do it. You have better knowledge of what to expect and all those things going on. And none of that's going to make it not suck, but it is a suck you are familiar with. We are now fully leaning into the devil, you know, whereas in March, 2020, this was definitely for all of us, the devil we didn't know. Right. And it, it feels can feel sometimes very weird to find those little itty bitty incremental increases as positives, but they are. And the more you let them be positives, the better an influence that can have on your mental state as we go forward. We're going to move on to our next question here. It comes in and says, with the latest round of awful stuff coming out about Hillsong, I don't know how to feel about the music they put out. Is it wrong to sing the songs now? What do I do with the memories I have of events and times in my life that those songs were involved in? And a very, very good question. If you are not uh, caught up, there has been officially a criminal fi- charge filed against the founder of the full-on Hillsong thing in Australia. I can't remember his name, but for basically uh, 
committing a sexual crime against a child and covering that up since I believe the 1970s. So it's been going on quite a long time. Uh, so that is, you know, that is extra strength. Awful. We do a lot of poking fun at kind of, you know, the, the quirks of mega church stuff and they don't spend their money necessarily well. And they've got a stupid fog machine, but this is a level beyond that uh, in an infinite way, obviously. But all these institutions have put out and kind of taken over the cultural landscape of Christian publishing and Christian music. And a lot of that is going to be in the ether. If you go to, you know, a camp or a conference, the odds are you encountered something like this. So I think it's a very, very good question, broadly applied. And Jed, where would we start off with it? This is a great question. And there is one version of the answer that's pretty easy and pretty straightforward. There's another version that's super complicated. Easy and straightforward, please. <laughs> well, the, the easy and straightforward one probably does not apply to our question and asker, which is to say, if you are a, a local church and you are making decisions about what songs you lead on Sunday morning, now would probably be a good time to not really be doing Hillsong songs. Um, yeah. that's, it's pretty easy. It's pretty straightforward. The optics are absolutely terrible. It's just, um, and there's far more worship songs out there than you could ever lead at your local church. So, you know, maybe, maybe sing something that doesn't have very understandable, terrible emotional baggage to it. Um, so again, if you're asking this as the person who curates the music that's used at a local church, the answer is probably pretty straightforward. If you're just a person, and as you say in your question, I've had some, some memories in my life where, you know, we, we sang, you know, uh, Hosanna in the highest from Hillsong United. And it was this really amazing moment. And it, you know, reminds me of my friends and whatnot. And what do I do with that? Well, in that case, the answer is really complicated and there's not one right, easy answer to that. Uh, I think if we want to know how to move forward on that, we need to, to get comfortable with some subtlety and with some nuance, which I know is no one's favorite, but here we are. So <laughs> why don't we, uh, dig in on that together? The first is, I think we want to acknowledge that particularly in the last 50 years, um, for the sake of making money, we have really blurred the lines between just appreciating art and media versus buying into a lifestyle brand. Let me, let me explain what I mean. Um, if you know the Christmas Carol, What Child Is This? That's actually an ancient folk song called Greensleeves is the melody. And um, I don't think anyone actually has any idea who wrote that. Like it's, it's been, you know, lost to time and it's just a cool melody. It's really nice and it's really haunting. It has a cool vibe and you could just like it. And it's not really possible to do more than liking the melody because nobody really knows who wrote it. And it's, you know, that's been lost to history. A lifestyle brand is where, for example, and, and not a knock, she's just a, a handy example. I don't just like Taylor Swift songs. I like her whole thing. I like her image. I like her vibe. I like the way that she does stuff on social media. I like the, you know, the way that she interacts with her fans. There's a way that she lives life that I aspire to, and it creates a brand, and I want to buy into that whole thing. I am a Swifty. Now, for a second, I want to be clear. I'm actually not knocking that, but I'm noting that buying into a lifestyle brand and enjoying a melody are two very, very different things. Um, they actually don't have very much overlap to them at all. And here's why this matters. The person who wrote Greensleeves, that guy could have been a complete jerk, but we don't know because it's lost to time. So it's just safe to like that melody because it's a nice melody and I don't have to worry about being let down because some scholar is going to discover that that was an awful, awful person. Whereas if I'm buying into a lifestyle brand, there is kind of this weird inherent risk of what if this turns out to be a terrible person? 
Um, mm-hmm. And then it's like, I have to repent of all the things that I like, or maybe I have to defend this person, even though it turns out that they're awful. And what that's starting to point to is the difference between enjoyment and fandom. Now, yeah. again, I want to be clear, fandom is not wrong. It's not bad, but it's a different thing. Just enjoying something versus fandom, the stakes are different, man. We've got this little Cajun restaurant near our house that's awesome. They make great food. I don't know anything about the person who makes the food. I just they just have great gumbo. It's just it's just really really good. But if I devoted myself and I'm like, no, I'm a Shanahan's guy, and this is the best restaurant in the world, and other restaurants are terrible in comparison. Like if something bad came out about that restaurant, that's you know that's a real problem for me. And so I think the the question that I would have for you is, did you enjoy the songs? In which case, no one can ever really, really take that away from you. Or were you a fan of the Hillsong brand? And I'm not, I want to be clear, I'm not criticizing you if you were a fan of the Hillsong lifestyle brand. But I think it is worth you looking at that and asking, what was this for you? It's one thing to say, Jude, I just heard this song and it's a pretty melody and I was with my friends and it was just kind of a magical weekend. And it's always, it'll have that place in my head and I wonder if that's still okay. That's one thing. And the short answer is, yeah, that, that's fine. Versus I looked at the brand of Hillsong and I thought that's the kind of Christian I want to be. Mm-hmm. When I think of what I aspire to be as a person of faith, it's that. Maybe that's a different thing. It's not that you were wrong to want that and it's not that you were bad to aspire to that, but maybe things have changed. And maybe it's okay to reexamine the kind of Christian that we want to be and the kind of, of life of faith that we want to aspire to. Here's here's bottom line, at least for me. Things have the meaning that we ascribe to them, mm. right? Like maybe you dated somebody at one point and you guys had your song and then it turns out they were kind of a jerk and they broke up with you and you never, ever want to hear that song again because to you, that song is a symbol of this person who really let you down. Okay, well, don't listen to that song anymore. It would be weird, though, for you to, to demand that no one else can ever enjoy that song because of your <laughs> ex. I mean, that... That, yeah. that would be strange. Things have the meaning that we ascribe to them. I think that for you personally, if you can listen to some Hillsong United track and it's just – it's a reminiscent reminder of your friends and the good times you shared and, and, and cool moments in your life, I, th- I think that's fine. You want to be sensitive to other people are not going to have that same ascribed meaning um, because they may have had other experiences and that for some people, this may be an extraordinarily loaded thing, but it's a lot of it boils down to a question of, are you enjoying this just as a piece of art and media or was this a lifestyle brand and fandom and something that you were aspiring to? Those are questions ultimately you have to answer for you. There are not easy right answers on that, but that's totally different from should your local church be leading Hillsong tracks on a Sunday morning. A very, very good point. And Lee, let's pick it up there with this idea of being an individual media consumer, because that is the, by far the most likely scenario most of us are in when it comes yeah. to any of this stuff. How do we continue to, I, and I think Jed starts down this road, deal with, uh, decouple where we need to, uh, just left off where we need to, the idea of I was at camp or I was at this conference or we were at church and I like the song and I dug the lyrics and it connected with me. And there's this kind of this weird thing. Cause we want to be clear. We're not talking about the guy who wrote that song has not been right. accused of anything. Nobody who on the recording has been accused of anything. This is the person who in another country founded the thing that has the same name and you know, the same organizational structure. 
And that's having a very real effect, but it's also a little bit distant. Like, how do we get from this guy is accused of doing something truly horrendous all the way down to a bunch of people he's never met, recorded a song, and now I feel weird about that? Well, it's a really good point that you say a bunch of people he never met. One of the things that's important to understand about this, and 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 actually... <clears throat> Matt, you and Jed could both speak to this even more than I could just because you guys have had, you know, more like, you know, email conversations and more meetings and stuff with with folks who do this. But we're talking about organizations with a lot of people involved. Yeah. I mean, like these these I mean, these companies, I mean, if you just look on like like Hillsong albums drop with a, a frightening regularity. Yeah. And and we know from a from just experience, it takes a lot of work to make a record in the first place, and and they that not only do the do these dr- records drop with a frightening regularity, but they drop in multiple languages, they drop in multiple styles. There's just always Hillsong music coming out. That speaks to the fact exactly as you set up the question. There are a lot of people involved in this. Most people have never met this dude. Um, whoever's doing this thing or, or whatever. And, and so, you know, when you look at like <clears throat> me as an individual person, I like the song or we sang this song at camp or my friend showed me this song or sent me this link to this song and, and I dug it and everything. That's just a totally different thing. Um, it's a, it's a weird, we're in a weird space in the world where when you, when you talk about the, like the speed with which things are being canceled right now, just kind of culturally anyway, it's just like, look, somebody does something and then we all decide like we're out on that. That's, that's over now. And so a lot of that makes perfect sense. But when you're looking at something like this, it's like, again, I mean, if you dig the song, you are not by listening to that song or by, you know, by, even sharing the song with somebody else, you're not saying that you condone the behavior of some guy from the seventies who has nothing to do with these people. At the same time, you have the right to feel uncomfortable about that, uh, to be feel uncomfortable about Hillsong, to feel uncomfortable about an organization that would, that would, uh, you know, that would come out of a person that, that would, uh, that would be perpetuated by somebody who has done things like this to people. And so you, all that to say, like you as an individual have the dignity and the right to listen to the song or not. Um, I remember there was, it was, gosh, I, I bet it was 10 years ago or something. Now, Matt, you and I were talking about a musician that we both liked who had become a massive tool in his private life. And you were like, yeah, I still dig the album. And, you know, and, and, and I was like, I don't really listen to it anymore. And, and you were like, you don't have to. And I was like, yeah, "Yeah, that's a good point. You know, and, and we didn't get an argument about that. It wasn't a thing of who's right or who's wrong. It was just like, yeah. And, and what's funny is, um, you know, that you and I and Jed and Glenn have all, we've all had the chance to meet a lot of, actually a lot of people who are in in like the Christian music business who are making a lot of the music that that people listen to. And the weird thing is, is that sadly, a lot of times after you hang out with these folks, it's like, yeah, I don't really listen to their music anymore. <laughs> and it's just like, yeah, I've hung out with them and they're just really not those people. Um, and you get to decide that. I mean, you you get to decide, do I want to listen to this or do I not? Again, this is such a huge organization with with so many bands dropping so many albums in so many languages in so many places 
all of the time that these individual people either writing these songs or performing these songs or playing on these songs or dropping these albums, they don't have anything to do with that guy. At the same time, if you feel like, so if, if you love a song, you get to listen to it. At the same time, if you feel like what this dude did was horrible and an organization that floats somebody like that makes me feel very uncomfortable and I don't want to listen to it, you get the right to do that too. I think that, I don't know if the question asker is coming out of this space, but I know that for me growing up in the church, I definitely, definitely was raised in this space. I guarantee you Jeb was raised in the same kind of space, which is there is just in Christian culture, they have the ability to lean on young people and tell them everything that's right and everything that's wrong. Yep. What you're allowed to do, what you're not allowed to do, what you're allowed to like, what you're not allowed to like. What you're allowed to listen to, watch, pay attention to, or be spoken in, you know, spoken to by. Um, and the thing that we want to say is throw that out. Just throw that out. If you have come to know Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives inside you, and you get to decide some stuff. Um, by the way, you get to decide um, on your own if you listen to just a really great secular love song and you want to sing that in your heart to the Lord as a worship song. Now that's a worship song for you. So you get to decide that too. Um, as Jed said when he opened this whole thing up, there are a kabillion at this point worship songs out there. There's a lot of stuff for you to listen to. You get to make that decision. There's not some, you know, your youth pastor doesn't get to tell you, your pastor doesn't get to tell you, I banned this song for these reasons. But if you feel uncomfortable because of some awful stuff that a corporation has let a dude do... And, and this thing has been able to float because people have turned their head, then you get to also decide I'm not on that. Again, you're an individual. You get to make that choice. I think that's such an important point and really, really well made. The individual consumer choice is going to be a big thing here. And, you know, um, the other thing about that, and it's very, very, very important point, is to go back to Jed's point about kind of getting, buying into things as a lifestyle brand. A big reason you did that, the only reason you did that, I'm going to go and say, is because that's how it was marketed. Yeah. You didn't look at Taylor Swift or Hillsong or, you know, uh, some Twitch streamer or I'm trying to come up with a male version here so I don't sound sexist, but, you know, an athlete or something and say, like, I want to build my entire lifestyle around that because it's so amazing. And I made that choice. They have the brand. They have the partnership with target that has the clothes they have the you know the tom brady whatever you know it, it's michael the jump man it's all branded it's meant to do that there's nothing wrong or shameful about sometimes admitting i got marketed to because there are corporations that spend billions of dollars doing that it works on all of us to some extent that's not a a moral or theological issue therefore it can't be a moral or theological deficiency it is just having been successfully marketed to which we're all successfully marketed to all the time and if you ever meet someone who says no that stuff doesn't work on me they are the most successfully marketed to person in the history <laughs> of the world because the final trick and magic of marketing is convincing you that it's your own decision um so that's nothing to be ashamed of and it's nothing to be ashamed in the sense of uh, changing course and saying, well, I like that now, but now I just don't feel comfortable with it. And there's also nothing shameful about saying, well, it's still a good song. Like I, I, this is still connected to me in the way that it did. 
And I acknowledge that we're not talking about discounting ag- uh, the accusations. We're not talking about downplaying what happened to anyone or what anyone did. We're just talking about taking these pieces of art as they are. But we would definitely, definitely say that if at some point you bought into that whole brand that the way to be a Christian is the Hillsong way and they they do it right and we, that's what we all aspire to, that's all the way out. We know too much about that organization. Yep. The things they they put up with, things they put forward, a lot of that was a lie. I'm not, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not saying every person who worked for Hillsong, every song they put out, every song they preached was was uh, evil. But as a whole thing, the Hillsong brand is, if as these things continue to come out, pretty much done. And if you bought into that, it's not because you're stupid. It's not because you're evil. Because you were successfully marketed to, that's nothing to be ashamed of, and it doesn't mean you can't go ahead and backtrack. We're going to jump to our final question here. It comes in and says. How do I leave it up to God if I keep doing the things that are bad? A lot of times I feel shameful that I've committed acts out of anger or satisfaction to make myself feel better, then feel bad about it the next minute. I want to stop or at least control myself. Is there a better way to understand and apply the term, leave it up to God? And I think this is is such a great question. One of our favorite uh, genres of question on this show is when someone takes a thing that Christians just kind of say because it sounds Christian-y. And really starts to look at, well, what does that mean and how do I do that? And this is a very, very good example of that. And Lee, where would we start off with it? I think I would start off with, it's funny because exactly as you're saying, Matt, there's there's a way that Christians uh, try to kind of, you know, the, the use certain phrases or or try to skip certain natural steps of just what it means to live life, just to kind of learn things and try to figure out what would be like a natural way of growth and change and stuff like that. And and it would be cool if Christians just had the ability to say, hey, instead of saying some quaint, adorable phrase um, that, that, you know, where where I don't have any responsibility or, you know, you know, where I don't have any understanding of what actually what it actually takes to change a life, let's just talk about this. I did a thing, it felt terrible, and so now I want to learn from that. That would be awesome if we could just say that. I just, I did a thing. I didn't like the result of that. And so now I would like some wisdom and some strategies over how to change that and do something else that doesn't feel as awful. I think you're actually on a path of some natural and some good um, steps towards change, which would go down that path. Um, We're not going to just, we don't need to use a phrase like, I'm just going to leave it up to God. Um, That's kind of a... It's it's one of these ways that it's kind of a Christian dereliction of duty. Like I, I'm just I, I don't have anything to do with with my behavior. I don't have anything to do with my with understanding what happened in my life. I'm just going to let God change me in His own time or whatever, whatever. Well, instead of that, why don't we look at the fact that you did some things? Um, it sucked, and you didn't feel good off of that. So now we can just be honest about that, and then we can look at great. Now we're going to try something else. I'm going to talk to some people. I'm going to get some good advice. I'm going to get some good wisdom. I'm going to try something else. And then when I try something else, I'm going to look at how that feels. The real true kind of natural path to change, and this is biblical, by the way, as well, is just to, after you've lived a moment, to look at that with, look at that with some honesty and talk, you know, involve people in your life involve the Lord in prayer 
and say, did I, did I move towards more life, more joy, more peace, or did I move towards more instability and drama and confusion? Did I move towards more difficulty? Um, and then, and really just looking at all of those things and being honest about it. Um, and getting some strategies for change. The Old Testament word, whenever you look in the Old Testament and it has the word wisdom, it's a word that means like skills for living. It's not just like who could be the smartest. It's like, how do you know what is the what is the wise thing to do in a situation? It has to do with discernment. It has to do with strategies. It has to do with tactics. And what the Bible wants you to do, the, the Lord said, I came that you might have life and have it to the full is that you would just naturally and honestly look at what have I done and what was the result of that? That's not any kind of, uh, that, that's not like a, a magical Christian phrase that says, we're just going to magically, I'm just going to magically change. I'm just going to put it into the Lord's hands. It's just being honest. Um, what did I do? Did it work? Did it not work? Okay, well, let's try something else. And I'm going to try to get some skills for living. I'm going to try to get some wisdom and some strategies over something else. And then I'm going to ask the same questions on the backside of that. Do I have more abundant life or do I have less life? Do I have more drama or do I have more peace? That's the way that we actually move through making changes in our life. It's slow. It's not magical or sexy. It doesn't feel real spiritual, but that's the way you actually make changes going forward. And I actually think you're um, with this kind of question, with this kind of honesty, you're on the path to making that kind of change in an actual, natural way. I think it's a really, really great place to start this off. And Jed, one of the things I love that Lee is pointing to there is this idea of a process, of it taking time, because one of the things of, we'll just leave it up to God, just give it up to God, as a cliche, as opposed to the actual meaning Lee's giving us there, is it really gives this idea of instantaneousness, right? Yeah. Like, and I, maybe that's where some of the frustration from our question after comes is I feel like I must not be doing this right because I still have this problem tomorrow. What do we say to that? Well, I think we want to acknowledge that growth as a person of faith is always a journey. And if you look at the really any of the heroes or heroines of the faith in the Bible, you see an arc. Um, you, you don't see instantaneous transformation. Uh, who Saul was and who Paul became are two very different people. Uh, who Abram was and who Abraham became, two very different people. Same thing with Peter, same thing with Moses. Um, and that the majority of these journeys and these, these transformations really took place over years and years and years, and in some cases, decades and decades, very long periods of time. And so, God wants to take each of us on a journey. Could God just transform you in a moment? I guess he could, but that's not typically how God chooses to work. And so I think what we are left with is the idea that you mentioned anger, for example, getting to a place of greater control over your anger is a journey. Yeah. Um, I don't think that for most of us, and probably not for you, I don't think that an instantaneous transformation is on offer. Um, if you're leaving it up to God, then you are leaving it up to God to choose how and when that would happen. And I, I rather doubt that he is offering you the one-click solution, unfortunately. So, I, And to be clear, I wish that he was, because I wish that for myself too, but that's just not typically how God works. So what is before you? Well, it turns out that 
you can definitely get better at having more control over your anger. Um, here are some of the constituent pieces that are going to be involved in that. Therapy, that's going to be a, a big one. Um, anger management classes are going to be a big part of that. Learning some practical skills of how to, to monitor and respond to your anger in healthy ways. Making some changes to the way that you live your life. Um, that might be elements of your lifestyle. That might be elements of, of the literal circumstances of your life. Maybe you live with people who just set off your anger all the time. Yeah. Um, you know, if that's the case, finding a different living situation would be a, a huge, huge step forward. And I think what you'd probably find if, if, if we could like interview the you of five years from now, um, and ask that person some questions, I think what they would say is the therapy and the anger management classes and the making some changes in my living situation, all of that made a difference and all of yeah. it worked together and all of it was a, a cohesive, um, integrated journey that, that made me the, the much more calm and peaceful and in control person that I, that I became. So maybe the question then becomes, okay, but where does God enter the picture in all of that? Which is a, a good and, and pertinent question. Well, if you're anything like me, the idea of, okay, here's what I want to do. Like five years from now, I want to start on a journey and I want to agree with myself that it's going to take years. And the goal is to become a substantively different person than who I am today. That's what we're trying to do here. Well, if you're anything like me, that's an overwhelming thing to consider. Um, that is something I am not in any way convinced I can pull off. It's not something I'm convinced I would, I would stick with. It's not something I'm convinced would work. Even if I know, you know, from uh, both anecdotal evidence and, and studies, whatnot, that it's, it's the best case. I'm just not sure that I can do that. One of the things that we're looking for is for God to sustain us on that journey. For God to be the one who strengthens us. Something I've heard Matt say before, and it really applies here, is a miracle is when something is more than it ought to be. Let me say that again. A miracle is when something is more than it ought to be. And I think that a humble person would say, look, I can give you my best effort every day for five years, but that will not result in me being a substantively different person who never flies off the handle. What we need here is a miracle. What we need here is something that is more than what it should be. And I think that's what God is offering you, but God is offering you a miracle that comes to life over a period of several years through a journey of therapy and anger management classes and making changes in your living situation. And you decide to agree to it each and every single day. That's leaving it up to God. Leaving yeah. it up to God means getting up in the morning saying, I'm leaving it up to God to make this go. I'm choosing to, partic to participate in this process, but I am trusting him to give me the strength for today and to turn all of this into something. And if you can dig it, that's literally what the Bible promises. In fact, it, it promises that the opposite can't be true. It says that unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain that build it. What that means is miracles are all we've got. Unless God turns all of this effort into something more than what it should be, it's not going to be much of anything. And so leaving it up to God means agreeing that God's going to need to be the one who builds the house, who makes it into something, and that keeps me strong and capable along the journey. You can do that one day at a time. We believe in you. We got your back. We're praying for you. Uh, it's a really, really great series of points there. All excellent stuff. Uh, the the quote that Jed is referring to there is me ripping off Frederick Buechner, as most things I say are. If anything, you can think of this podcast as a handy uh, time-saving device. If you don't have time to read the collected works of Frederick Buechner, if you live this, listen to this <laughs> podcast long enough, rest assured, I will steal it all sentence by sentence. But the, the Buechner quote is, a miracle is when one plus one equals 100. 
And it's, it's a great quote. It's a great way to, th- I love that way of thinking about miracles. And I think it helps us think of these smaller acts as no less miraculous. We were, we were talking before we hit record about a conversation where somebody changed their mind by about a drop in the bucket towards the right thing. And here's yeah. the thing about that. If you know this, if you, if we had time to get into the circumstances and what this person was up against, that was a miracle. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's a much happier world and a much uh, more easy world to live in than when, if you acknowledge and accept the miraculous nature of those things. Well, and it sets up, I mean, in that particular conversation, we're still leaving listeners in the dark, but it sets up the possibility for more potential miracles for this person. Absolutely right. You know, if you, as to use Jed's uh, anger management example, if you read a book, go to find a good therapist, uh, find, you know, something, a meditation thing that you, that works for you, any and all of the above, and you do 1% better with your anger over the next week. Now you could focus on the 99% that you still have to go and really despair at that. Or you can look at 1% better that's a lot. That's yeah. kind of amazing. A lot of people yeah. go their entire lives without getting 1% better at handling their Anything. anger. And if you are doing that, as we're pointing out here, because you are connected to the Lord, you are pursuing uh, what the life you know he wants for you, that is miraculous. That is God getting up in your thing and changing it. That is mm-hmm. what a miracle is, and that is what is happening to you, sometimes even if you don't see it. And don't give any credence to anybody who thinks that because your miracle isn't happening quick enough, it doesn't count because that is not the way God thinks about things. If you have a question for us at podcast at gmail.com, thebridgechicago.tumblr.com slash ask. If you want to keep that entirely anonymous, you can check us out, including our Bridgecast every Sunday at 7 p.m. Central Time at facebook.com slash bridgechicago. We're going to the song this week. We've been talking about dealing with uh, big feelings, dealing with anxieties and whatnot. And I think the perfect thing to take us out with is a collaboration between our friends, the pool house guru. Well, and as much as he can be a friend to anyone from his mountaintop chalet, <laughs> but definitely our friend, Jeremy Nichols. This is a track Jeremy featured on for plus guru based on Philippians four, six. Okay. With that, thanks for listening. Just remember, we love you. God loves you. There's nothing you can do about it. The say that podcast. We don't need no education. We don't need no thought control. This is what being strong and courageous is all about. It's about taking on our fears and worries head first. It's also what faith is about, tackling our doubts and anxieties head first. As long as I can remember, anxiety, worry, and fear have been a part of my life. I remember as a kid, I was that nervous, shy kid that seemed afraid of everything. I was brought up in a Christian family, so I went to Sunday school, and one of the very first ones that I memorized is from Philippians 4, 6, and 7. It says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is what being strong and courageous is all about. It's about taking on our fears and worries head first. It's also what faith is about, tackling our doubts and anxieties head first. My trouble was I'd memorize that verse, but I'd still be anxious. The trouble was I'd also feel guilty about my anxiety and condemn myself because I thought I was disappointing God whenever I was fearful 
or had an anxious thought or worry came up. So why do I tell you all this? Because throughout my life, feelings of anxiety, fear have continued to rear their ugly heads and I've had to fight it daily. This is what being strong and courageous is all about. It's about taking on our fears and worries head first. It's also what faith is about, tackling our doubts and anxieties head first. We need to fight it, we need to tackle it. When feelings of fear and worry take us by surprise, we shouldn't run away and hide. We need to take it on. The verse says, when anxiety starts to hit us, don't retreat, we need to pray. In every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. You know, when I feel anxious, it causes me to pray. Anxiety, it humbles me. It helps me realize that I need God's strength, wisdom, and guidance. Anxiety and fear helps me realize that I cannot do it on my own. Anxiety helps me know I'm weak and that I need God, and all these things are good things. Because instead of giving in or retreating, instead of choosing the easy option, the Apostle Paul tells us to pray. He tells us to pray with thanksgiving and tell God all about it. He tells us to be honest about it and not leave anything else. Prayer is an act of faith, it's an act of courage. When we pray, when I pray, I know a burden is lifted because we're taking our anxieties, fears and worries off our own shoulders and placing them on God's shoulders. They become His problem and He can definitely handle it. We still need to act and we still need to do His will. But the difference is by praying, no matter how difficult it is, we can move forward in peace, knowing our problems are in God's hands.